I totally forgot that I was going to go up after the online shopping announcement. I'm like, oh no, like, what do you guys feel about this? Like, are there stones? Are you guys ready to do something? Like, I just have to be trusting that you guys are okay with that. And also trusting that you're going to be thinking about maybe some of the words I'm going to say, as opposed to like, what do I need to order before Tuesday? Is it that it has to get there on Tuesday? Is it that I have to order it by Tuesday? This sermon isn't about that, so we'll do some more thinking, I guess, elsewhere. Um, so welcome, everyone. My name is Josh Williams. I'm the lead pastor here at the Elm City Vineyard. I'm very glad uh, to be here today. I'm very glad that you guys are here today. Uh, I want to start with a little bit of a story. Um, when I was in divinity school, I lived right across from the school on Prospect Street. And it was weird because I was like, who are my neighbors here? I guess like some divinity school students, this kind of plot of land that's used for farming, which is very interesting and cool. There's like some people that I kind of see sometimes going in and out. Like, I wonder, like, was I in a neighborhood? And the answer was, yes, I was. But my school, uh, Yale Divinity School, didn't always help me know what neighborhood that was, a neighborhood called New Hallville. Uh, my experience of Yale Divinity School was that it was almost like a city on a hill. Like, that's kind of what YDS felt like, even differently than my time as an undergrad downtown at Yale, um, kind of enmeshed in between uh, a lot of urban streets, traffic, people, there's people around. YDS was more the seminarians and professors and a few other people that somehow managed their way to find YDS. Sometimes like a few runners like going up and down. And so one of the things I was learning at ECV was what does it mean to try to connect to your neighbors? And more than trying to connect to your neighbors, um, thinking about what God is doing among them. There was this verse in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 19, that I, uh, a paraphrase, that Jesus saying, I only do what I see the Father doing. And as we were getting into that verse and understanding what that means for us, one of the things that I learned was, wait, I can turn a corner and go a different way, not my way downtown, but basically into New Hallville, and start a practice of awareness, of seeing, of learning. And I was trying to do that um, kind of like an, as an everyday practice, walk in New Hallville and see what God is doing. To be honest, I was in a little bit of a, a mid-YDS uh, crisis. For those people who have maybe gone to Yale Divinity School, pursued theological education, maybe any education, this is like a very familiar place. Some people would say it started when I like entered the program, and maybe it ended like as soon as I got my, I think I'm done with it now because I'm over with YDS. Uh, sometimes it is just like that second year. You wonder, why am I here? I was wondering why a Divinity School five minutes from the hood wouldn't engage it at all. Was the father not doing anything there? Or was it that the community that was educating me was maybe blind or deaf to the father's activity? At ECV, it was a place of integration for me. People that had theological education, people that had gone to YDS or were currently going, they were saying, no, we actually really feel like God is speaking to us, that God is up to things in New Haven and in our world. They tried to have their eyes open and ears open to what God was doing. And I was trying to learn from them and to listen to what God had. Some people were people with degrees, some people weren't, but they all had a heart for New Haven. So I was doing these New Hallville hope walks with the hope of seeing what God was doing. One day I started one of these walks and I uh, immediately saw someone. And I felt uh, kind of in a strange way, I'm supposed to talk to that person. That was a new thing for me. I wasn't one of those people that said, uh, that thought I could hear from God. I thought that was like something for people over there people who are very gifted, uh, basically people that weren't me. I thought that hearing from God was maybe like an occasional thing that happened sometimes, and the community that I was in was saying it was a regular thing. 
that we can ask God and then God would lead us and guide us. But something happened in my life, not then in that moment of seeing this person, but before that kind of like ruined me for like you could say the ordinary. And it was going to an ECV prayer ministry training where they're like, hey, like a lot of people don't think they can hear from God. But let's step into a practice of just saying, what if? What if God could speak? What if God were real? And what if God spoke kind of gently, even quietly? And what if God didn't sound like a booming voice at all, but maybe sounded very quiet? Maybe even like your own voice, just with some weight on it. And I had started to see in times of prayer ministry that like God, it seems like, was speaking. People I was either praying with prayed maybe the same thing or something that kind of went with what I felt like God might be saying. Or uh, the person just said, yeah, like, that's right. <laughs> like, I don't know why you're so shocked, but like, that's, that is like what God is doing in my life. And I was really surprised by that. But I wondered, did that just stay in the four walls of the church? Or could it travel? Could it go unexpected places? So there I was, but this not happening in the context of a service or kind of a trainee person with me, any kind of help. It was just me and I guess God and this person. And I felt like the Lord said, yeah, talk to him. So I did. And I said hello. He said hello back. And we ended up talking about the roof of my apartment. I don't know why. It's just like what we talked about. It's, hey, that roof. Like, yeah, it's kind of a cool roof, right? I guess. Yeah, it's really interesting. Like, it's weird. Like, the backside of the building doesn't look like that at all. Oh, really? Yeah. Like, wait, why are we talking about this? But it felt like I should still be in the conversation. And then finally, somehow it came up, again, I don't remember how, uh, that he was really into music. And I was like, oh, like, music. A much better topic for me for conversation. I was dating Tina. I was like, hey, I'm dating someone who's, like, really into music. Why am I telling them I was dating someone? I don't know. But, hey, we're still connecting over music. This is great. And, uh, you know, a few minutes later, all of a sudden, uh, there was an invitation to go to a worship night that I had suggested. And he's like, yeah, that sounds cool. And that was the moment we kind of exchanged information. That was it. There wasn't a worship night happening that night, but our community was in a practice of just doing worship all the time, uh, kind of informally gathering together and singing or playing music. So I was like, there'll be something that happens. So I invite him to this gathering ended up happening that night. It was like, hey, friends, I come over, like, do this thing. Usually, I had, like, a robust response to that. For whatever reason, this night, it was just Tina, me, and this person. It's like, that's a little awkward, but hey, I thought God was in it. Maybe, right? Could be. And so, as we're worshiping together, he's engaging in music. It seems like he has some kind of background with singing, maybe even singing in church, and it's, like, a really powerful time just of, you know, simply worshiping God through song. And then I see something, uh, kind of in my mind's eye, like seeing a picture um, and it's of a crown. And I felt like uh, God said, again, this is a strange new thing happening in my life, uh, that this image is something that's related to my friend. His name's Porter. He gave me full permission to share the story. Uh, and I said, okay, God, look, what's this about? And the, the phrase that came with this picture of a crown was, uh, I'm the king, and because I'm connect or God is the king, and because of that, I'm royalty. God is a king, and because of that, I'm royalty. I was like, this is kind of weird. I don't know what this is about. So instead of like trying to like kind of pray it or like be like, hey, like there's this like powerful word. I was like, hey, I just like got this picture. It's a crown. There's this phrase. Here's what it is. Does that mean anything to you? And I could see kind of from his reaction, it did. It was kind of like being stopped like in your tracks. And he said, that's incredibly strange. And then he started to tear up a little bit. Because he said, that's the phrase when I was incarcerated, I would say every night. Because I didn't feel connected. 
I didn't feel like royalty. And I had to tell myself, because there's a king, because there's this God that says that he is this, that means something for me. And every night I prayed that prayer and wondered like when I would get out and what my life would look like afterwards. Uh, that little three-person worship night became a little bit more powerful then. God's spirit showed up in a way. And what's interesting about that night is it started a friendship. Sometimes when God moves, we wonder what happens. Why would we obey? Um, like kind of what could come from it. And this isn't what happens all the time, but it actually did start a connection and a deep friendship, not just a one-off story. Um, Porter happened to become one of the groomsmen in my wedding, a person that was very close to me as I was blabbering with tears when I was seeing Tina down the aisle, which now you can see if you're up close or maybe just like, nope, you can see it, Josh, you're almost crying. Uh, actually, if you were there, crying. Uh, I'm the godfather to his son, Jeremiah. This is just part of, I guess, what happens when you step out sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes. It's a relationship only built off of God's power and God's voice, like a stranger that actually has become family. And if I hadn't learned some habits from a spirit-led community, ECV, a community where I was an intern at the time, if I hadn't followed leaders in my own life who told me to get curious about this outside of the church, not just satisfied to do a prayer practice inside the church, and crucially, if I didn't serve a God who had power to share with us, power that transforms our compassion from mere sentiment into something that actually looks quite different, and power that leads us to cross boundaries to the Spirit, none of that would have happened. To me, this is a crazy thing about who our God is, that we can follow a simple invitation that carries a lot of risk, I'm aware of that, and does take us outside of our comfort zone, but sometimes it seems like when things align, God moves in a particular way, and it becomes much more than about our own lives and our decisions, but God creates something that it seems like only God could create. This is the power of stepping out and sharing something it feels like God is up to. We're in our last week of a series called Worth Sharing, and my hope is that this series is somewhat expansive, uh, and also that it's expanded things in your vision of what's possible. That if you're someone that's been on the fence about spiritual community yourself, you would realize, oh, I think I can share God's goodness even before I believe. That I could step out and just say, I think God might be doing this in my life. I want to share that with someone, regardless of what your commitment to Jesus looks like. And I hope you're learning some of God's story and feeling empowered to share that in your own words, in your own way. My hope is that you're thinking, what does it mean for me to show up as my whole self in any space that I'm in? Whether it's work, a classroom setting with family, that you're thinking about your whole life saying, what does it mean that I have a story and that God may be in that story? How do I share that authentically with integrity, even maybe with desire to share your whole life with someone, even the deepest parts? My hope is that as we think about God's work in us and as our love for God grows, this would include the parts of sharing, that that part of our life would necessarily grow too, that as we grow with God, it wouldn't just be growth individually, but we'd think about growth corporately and even how we're sharing about that with other people. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The greatest commandment from Jesus. I hope we know a little bit more now about God's goodness, a little bit more about God's story, 
And today we'll be focusing more on God's power through his love. And I want to ask for God's leadership to guide us in what this means for our own set of relationships, what it means for our own life, what it means for us to walk with a kind of integrity, to share not in a way that feels inauthentic to us, but to share in a way that feels like we're being in some ways authentic and clear and passionate about our own lives. When we think about what does someone think about my life, whether my life with God or just my life altogether. So I want to pray for us as we begin that God would be here today. Holy Spirit, would you come here? Would you give us your power? Would you surround us with your presence? Would you guide us in our time today? In Jesus' name, amen. Today we'll be talking about how God's power through the Holy Spirit is worth sharing. Given our abuse of power uh, as humanity, it could seem like God's invitation to learn about power through the Holy Spirit would be maybe like an advanced class in the kingdom, like only available after good marks and like a recommendation from, like I guess, Jesus. Fortunately for us, that's not the case. The Holy Spirit's power is foundational, not additional. We see this clearly in Paul's writing, Paul, a church planner, uh, who wrote to the church of Corinth. Corinth is a place where Paul ministered for about a year and a half. And this community did not know Jesus at all. They were in the context of a Greco-Roman culture. And then uh, Paul started ministering the story of Jesus through power, through works of power. And people began to follow Jesus, and they formed a church. And about after like maybe a year and a half, two years, uh, Paul left. And then they followed Jesus on their own. But there were some divisions in the community, some internal fractures and external pressures given their culture. And then Paul wrote them a letter to orient them back to following Jesus. What does he bring up for folks that are struggling with Jesus? Folks struggling to kind of follow him with everything they have. What's their remedial class to get back in the swing of things? It's all about the power of God. Paul writes this. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming the mystery of God to you in lofty words or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My speech and my proclamation were not with plausible words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might rest not on human wisdom, but on the power of God." According to Paul, God doesn't just care, maybe doesn't even care as much as we think about our proclamation of wise words. Though Paul, if you've read this, is like very eloquent, and people definitely respond to that. But it rests on a demonstration of the Spirit's power. The Spirit's power is a word called dunamis in Greek. It means miraculous power, might, and strength. It often is the word that gets uh, translated as just miracle or Uh, power, even ability. And it's this ability we see Jesus walk out in the Gospels all the time. Jesus healing people left and right in the stories of the Gospels. And we see Jesus even give this power away early on in his ministry, before he does famous teachings, before he dies on the cross. In the Gospel of Matthew, an account of Jesus' life, in chapter 10, verse 1, he gives it away to his disciples basically right after he picks them, saying, go, you have authority to heal all diseases, to cast out every unclean spirit. What have they done to earn that? It seems like nothing but be chosen by Jesus. It turns out this power from God isn't optional. 
It's foundational. Jesus cares about it enough that's part of the story of the Gospels. It's not just a story of ethical teaching, but of interruptions, where people say they need things from Jesus, and Jesus stops what he was doing, stops the important teaching, the moment with his disciples, or sometimes eating food, to say, okay, I'll serve you. And that service usually looks like God's power. It's empowerment that's so strong and so clear, he even lets the newbies of the disciples engage him with this power including two people that would later betray him, one unto death. If that's not being generous with sharing your power, I don't know what is. In fact, this is a way of telling the story of God. We can see how the Jesus movement begins with all these different miracles that people can end up talking about, and Jesus' reputation grows and grows. The story of Acts, the community of people following Jesus after he's resurrected, it's the same thing, ordinary people with an extraordinary God. And they do works of miracles. Even when you look at church history, you see denominations that are started with these kinds of stories, that get turned around, the Spirit revives them with these kinds of stories. We sit here in a Methodist church. This church movement started with stories of God doing miraculous works of power, both in England and in America. We've seen that in the Episcopal and Catholic congregations that are revived and renewed through the power of the Spirit, the global explosion of new churches in Asia, Africa, and Latin America, and even the local phenomenon of people planting those churches in America and them thriving, doing well in almost every American city, every American state. In fact, this is the story of the vineyard. Ordinary people, or maybe a little weird, they were hippies, you know, back in the 70s, and then they tried about everything, and finally tried Jesus, and they're like, this is kind of good. We like this. And they started to do Bible studies and to worship and to be together. And then they felt this urgency that it couldn't just be for them, just for their small community. But they stepped outside. And they asked a really profound question over and over again to different people in their city. Can I pray for you right now? This expectation that God would move, not in far off ways, not long after they saw them, but maybe right then in that setting. Can I pray for you because you're sick? Can I pray for you because you're crying? Can I pray for you because you're discouraged? Okay, later, uh, if, if it's possible, could I pray for you right now? And God started moving. People were set free of different addictions, were healed of different diseases. Not always, but often enough that this movement began to start a work of renewal, not just in its own kind of corner, but also with other churches that they visited and said, hey, are you guys reading the same book? Let, let's try this together. Let's worship together across denominations. Let's serve each other. This simple question, can I pray for you right now, became an avenue for the Lord to move. As you think about this with your own life, have you ever been asked this question? Maybe have you asked this question? And what are your feelings around it? Is it excitement? Maybe nervousness? Perhaps when you were asked this question, you felt relief? Wow, someone will see me, can serve me. Maybe as you think about asking it, you feel nervous. I felt all those things before, but the thing I feel the most when I think about this question is involved. I'm involved in Jesus' plan of redemption. I'm involved in what God is doing in the world today. It felt like I was finally doing life with Jesus, and that his agenda was finally stepping in and, so, and, and, and blocking out and canceling and working with my own agenda, like the Jesus agenda was finally seen. 
but it still can seem kind of far off to us. It still can seem kind of lofty or, or out there. And I want to share a story from the life of Jesus and talk about a particular word that helps make this more a part of our lives and I think seem more ordinary to us. Because Jesus doesn't seem to campaign or kind of broadcast this miraculous power he has, but again, it comes up in these interruptions in his life. And I want us to look at one key way that Jesus often gets interrupted. This is a story from the Gospel of Luke. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went with him as he approached the gate of the town. A man who had died was being carried out. He was his mother's only son, and she was a widow. And with her was a large crowd from the town. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion for her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came forward and touched the bier, and the bear stood still. Jesus decides to interrupt a sad scene, a scene that we often can maybe identify in our own lives, something we see where it just is tragic. But sometimes we say we're going to be removed from that. That's someone else's story. Jesus doesn't consider that an option. He gets close to the story. He gets close to the death. He gets close to the funeral. And what does he say? Do not weep. The compassion, which is already a kind of power, it's already a spiritual gift that that same Paul, the church planner, he writes about in that letter to Corinthians. That's power in and of itself, the compassion to get close, regardless of what happens. Jesus dares to become a part of their story. He doesn't feel like distance is an option here. This decision, I think, is led by this word compassion and what it means to have compassion. In the Greek, it's a word, it's kind of weird. It's like to be moved is to one's bowels. Kind of gross, right? But when you think about compassion, if you felt that for someone else, if you felt that even yourself, just the, the kind of way that sometimes you want to be seen by God, it's that God moves in your gut. When you see something in New Haven that arrests your attention, someone on the street being mistreated, an ambulance that walks by, that moves by, seeing something in your workplace, and you feel something, it happens in your gut. And that's having compassion on someone or something. And Jesus says, when you feel that, take notice. Because it's a sign that you should do something. That you shouldn't stay removed. That you should get involved. Always with wisdom, asking God what to do. But that compassion is a sign of something. It's not just what you ate last night. It's what God is doing in you. We see that Jesus moves he decides to get involved. And Jesus said, young man, I say to you, rise. Yes, the man that was dead. I say to you, rise. The dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized all of them. And they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has risen among us. And God has looked favorably on his people. This word about him spread throughout Judea and all the surrounding country. A dead man alive. A dead son returned to his mother. A mother now rejoicing in a community, a community that was a funeral. But with Jesus, it becomes a party. All because that compassion, Jesus didn't let the compassion just be a feeling, but he turned it into action. That same compassion that Jesus felt, we feel probably every day. And the question is, are we turning to God when we feel that compassion? Are we just saying, man, another sad situation in New Hallville. That's another sad scene in New Haven. That's another sad scene in my workplace. And I can't guarantee that every time you step out in compassion, it's going to look like this at the end of the story. What I can guarantee you is you will feel closer to God, to your neighbor, 
And if you ask God for wisdom, they'll feel closer to you as well. And God does move with power. We're led by compassion. To proclaim if we're led, to tell something, but to demonstrate, to demonstrate the power of the Spirit. Being led by compassion takes the ordinary events of our days and it turns it into something extraordinary. And like I said earlier, even if nothing happens seemingly, usually that person feels loved, seen, cared for, and dignified. And sometimes their, their circumstance changes quite dramatically. Compassion does good work either way. We can be led by compassion. A while ago in New Haven, I was working a job uh, that was promoting reflection in the life of students at Yale. Um, my colleague was a Muslim woman, and one of the things that was really exciting and refreshing about that is we would talk about faith. And we would have like, these great faith conversations and kind of reflect that uh, her department and sometimes even in YDS, we couldn't have these robust conversations about faith, even with our faith difference. And for whatever reason, uh, she kind of asked a lot about ECV uh, and then decided to like, kind of invite herself. I'm pretty sure I didn't invite her. She was like, hey, like, I can come, right? And I'm like, yeah, definitely, like, come. It's great. And so she's like, yeah, I want to regularly come to this church community. I was like, this is awesome. This is cool. And so she came, and she found it to be a real place of peace for her. Like she really engaged with worship, uh, with the messages, and we would talk probably each week about what uh, God seemed to be up to in our lives, and even how that service of ECV was making some kind of a difference in our lives. I was really surprised one week when she came over to get prayer after uh, a prayer call, and uh, she prayed with me. I was like, wow, this is really interesting. She's choosing to be vulnerable in this way, even with the difference in our faith. She said, hey, I've got some really bad news. Um, I went to the doctor last week, and they discovered the cyst, and I'm really worried about what the news might be, and I don't know if it's cancerous. I'm not sure what's going on, but can we pray together? And uh, she let me pray for her, and we prayed. And I remember, for whatever reason, praying that uh, the doctor would just find the cyst and just open it up, and it would just be fluid. I don't know about cysts. I'm not a medical professional. I don't know why I prayed that specifically, but I just felt led to pray those words. That kind of would just open up, discover what's inside, and would just be like kind of uh, completely, totally fine. Just fluid that, yep, that was just empty. And we're okay. That next week, she comes back to church and says, Josh, I've got to tell you something. Like, I went to the doctor, and I, I'm so grateful that you prayed because I went, and the same exact thing that you said, like they, the doctor said, like, they opened this cyst up, they cut it, and it was just fluid. Like, it's nothing bad. And I was like, I didn't know why I said that, but it seemed to mean something to her and the care that she received. This wasn't about, like, a word that meant not to go to the doctor. It's like going to the doctor was a part of the story. Like, her feeling peace when she did that was part of the story because she was quite anxious. And somehow God was knitting us together as colleagues and as friends and using ECV as part of that, despite the difference in the way that she identified in faith. That was crazy to me, but there was just this goodness that God was sharing with me and with her. We became deeper friends and were part of uh, this community in a different kind of way. Like ECV even for me became like a different kind of space. Like, oh, I guess you can invite people that I would even maybe think maybe I shouldn't invite because of respect even, but she wanted to come. This is part of the work of community, being led by compassion, because when she shared I felt that compassion for her. She's worried. She's troubled. What can I offer? Well, it's what she came to me for, prayer. 
Sometimes people are knocking on your door, asking for you to respond to the very thing that you're feeling in your heart. And they're saying, basically, could you pray for me? Would you pray for me? They might not have language for that, but you could offer that. It's a way God could be moving in your midst. There's one more story of Scripture I want to read today, and one more point. We'll we'll end here. Some of you all might know this story. It's a story of Jesus meeting a woman at a well. It's a woman that has an ethnic difference, a religious difference. Jesus is Jewish. She's a Samaritan. But they meet at the same place, this well. And this difference is one of the first things she says to him. You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. There's a meeting place here, but it's unclear what's going to happen because of this difference. The power of God has something to say about this, though, because the power of God can unite people across lines of difference, sometimes in ways that speech can't. It might even be like a really good idea not to talk. The power of God can do the work. Their meeting continues. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. I love this line in Scripture. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. It's like, understatement of the year. But I was like, oh, actually, I, like, I love that. She's like, I'm just going to respond with what's true. Like, you didn't catch me in anything. You're good. No, I'm just going to say, like, you're a prophet, okay? Like, real recognize real. Like, I recognize you're a prophet. But Jesus is doing some things. You know, in that same passage, the, the letter I keep referencing, 1 Corinthians, you might think that this is a, a word of knowledge that Jesus has. Like, he didn't have, like, a pre-meeting with her. He didn't know that. But then it seems like through the power of God, through the Spirit of God, he does. God's Spirit is working where maybe words would keep having them at this difference and distinction. Power is drawing them together. We see this continue. Jesus, uh, the woman continues saying, Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And then Jesus says this. I'll just read what's in bold. Woman, uh, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. There's a difference that you would feel like could not be covered. And then all of a sudden, through this work of power, this woman begins to be curious in a different kind of way. Well, I guess we are talking, so can I ask you one of my questions? Can I just state something that's true to me? Like, I worship here, you guys worship there. And then Jesus says, yes, true, but what if God's doing something new? What if God's doing something different? What if it's about what the Father is doing, uniting people, gathering people together, and seeking out worshipers? And what if that's enough for you to say that you're in? And then she knows something of the story of God. Because oftentimes people know something of the story of God, even if they'd never uh, say it with that language. But they know something true. We all kind of are that way. We know things that are true. Sometimes there are things that God has shown us, and sometimes there are things that God has placed in our hearts. And people draw that out for us and with us. And she goes, well, I know there's someone called the Messiah. And that person's really important to knowing how we'll be rescued. And then Jesus says, that's me. And the connection is made in a deeper way. 
It's not just a prophetic word. It's not just a cool exchange and conversation, but it's communion. It's unity. It is rescue. The power of, from God lets us connect beyond our boundaries. There are tons of boundaries in that story, and yet the power of God is what connects them to deeper relationship with one another and for her deeper relationship with God. One last story, and I'll finish with a little piece of scripture, and then we'll move into our closing. People know the, the, the techniques. We're about to get there, but we're not there yet at the end. So, uh, like I said, I was in a little bit of a mid-YDS crisis, and one of the reasons why was because communities I really cared about, black and brown communities, I didn't know if my school cared about. And at ECV, there was definitely care and concern for black and brown communities, but I was wondering, how am I going to be a part of that? I'm learning from this church community, I love this church community, and yet I feel like there's a city around us, and I want to know how God is moving in it. I want to see what the Father is doing and not be satisfied that the Father is doing something with people that only look a certain kind of way. But I recognized that I had a responsibility to play there. I couldn't just complain. I had to ask God, what are you doing in me? What kind of opportunities can you give me? And so I started to pray. And then one of my friends who was connected with our community but not a part of ECV said, well, I'm going to go uh, to Fairhaven this weekend. I'm going to do kind of a prayer walk and then pray for people. I was like, I feel like that's like the right invitation for me. That might have even been God like answering a prayer. So I decided to go, and I've just got to be honest with you as I tell the story. I've never seen Fairhaven like this before or since. So it was like a wild, crazy day. So please still choose to go to the neighborhood. Also a kind of experience a story with me in that like, this was just a crazy day in Fairhaven. When I went, there's groups of people, uh, kind of young men, just kind of walking in clusters throughout kind of the different parts of the street I saw. And they were walking fast, walking with purpose. And I was like, this is like kind of different than like sometimes like my New Hallville walks. This is different than like going to Kensington where I had started to serve and volunteer, different than downtown. And then I see a group of cops and they're, they're all over. And no joke, the cops had AK-47s, like not the usual gun. Like they had like paramilitary, military-esque like, like weaponry. It was insane. You probably have heard some of that or read about that. They're like just as a thing, police officers and police forces now just kind of gear up. And I saw that in Fairhaven. And I felt afraid, like scared, uh, in a way that I don't usually feel moving around in cities. But I had seen something that, again, I, I hadn't seen before and I actually haven't seen since. And I was like, so, how's this prayer gonna go? And I noticed we'd started to pray, but we were only like kind of doing intercessory prayer, like, Lord, we just protect this place, like, Lord, and like, that's fine. But we weren't praying for people. Because I think we were actually all kind of scared together. We didn't know what was going down that day. And even though a lot of us had ministered in different contexts, it just felt like something was up, kind of in the atmosphere. And so we were praying for like corners, but not praying for people. Again, I believe in praying for corners. But I think we also had hope to pray for people. And then all of a sudden we go to this place, uh, kind of an open uh, area, and we see a lot of teens. And we say, hey, this is a great place to pray. And so we kind of uh, ask people, hey, we're here to bless this neighborhood of Fairhaven. Uh, we know this is your neighborhood, but we'd love to pray for you if you like that or if you'd let us. And so I was praying for someone that said, yeah, like, that's great. And so I uh, tried to listen to God to see what God had for this person. 
Again, I was still pretty new at this practice, uh, but I had seen God move in the context of the church, so I just hoped it would be the same God I found in Fairhaven, even with uh, AK-47s and people moving fast. Like, I just hoped that God would still be on the move, that the Father would be up to something. And what I saw in my mind's eye was uh, the same person at night in front of a mirror, and they were uh, doing rhymes, like rap, poetry, uh, kind of like spoken word. And what they were saying was encouragement, like about themselves, like kind of building themselves up. And so I just relayed that. I said, hey, I see this picture. It's you at night in the bathroom, like doing these kind of rhymes about like encouraging yourself. And the person just started to laugh. It's like, why are you laughing? Or, well, I do that like every night. Like that's what I do. And it's kind of silly. I kind of feel embarrassed that you know that. I was like, well, actually, it's not just me that knows that. I think God like shared that like with me for you. I think the reason is because God